All right, let's go to our scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. Let's listen attentively uh, as I read God's word for us. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray before we dive into God's word together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to worship you, calling us to confess all that we are before you and be encouraged by the fact that you do receive us uh, for who we are, and yet you also conform us to what we're meant to be uh, as we hear your word and as we live according to your word. So, um, Spirit, help us uh, to receive this word and, and let it impact the way that we live. And, and even as we hear some of the, the difficult language that's used in this text, Lord, uh, help us to uh, receive it with humility and receive it with a teachable heart. So we ask that you soften our hearts and work in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in our series in the book of uh, Revelation, and and today we're landing on the third of the uh, seven um, letters to the churches. And uh, remember, uh, each letter closes with, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, meaning uh, this letter is actually addressed to all of the churches, all the Christians, all the saints, to all of us uh, as well. At the same time, right, we looked at the first couple weeks of this, that the first recipients of these, this, these letters were Christians living in Asia Minor, in the first century, and so uh, God did use their specific historical context to, to speak relevant truths to, to the churches. So we do have to interpret the passage according to their context and try to enter into that context ourselves. Here's how this letter opens in verse 12. Uh, and to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Right. So like all the letters... Uh, to the churches, this also opens up with a unique sort of identifying name or title for Christ. And the one uh, used for here is the same, the same pattern as before. It's intended purposefully for this particular church. And the name used here is him who has a sharp two-edged sword. The term two-edged sword appears elsewhere in the Bible, right? You probably know Hebrews 4.12 where it says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's almost like God's way of doing surgery on us or revealing something that's deeply hidden that we, we're not aware of. And, and so to identify himself that way here is, in a way, Jesus prefacing this letter saying, I'm about to 
I'm about to reveal something to you that you're not aware of yourself. Okay. Uh, it's sharp because it's God's piercing knowledge. It's a sword because it carries with it his judicial authority to pronounce a proper diagnosis or judgment of, of what's going on. And that's what we're going to be unpacking uh, today through this text. And I want to outline it for you this way, uh, what Jesus reveals about the city of Pergamum, what he reveals about the Christians in Pergamum, and what he reveals about his heart towards his people. Okay, uh, The city, the church, and the heart of Christ, these three. All right? So first point, what he reveals about the city, the city of Pergamum. Verse 13 starts with, uh, these two words, I know, okay, uh, the omniscient one is saying, I know, he's saying, I'm, I'm intimately aware of something, knowledgeable about something, and he says, I know where you dwell, meaning the city where you, you currently live in, and what would be the meaning of that? It's not as though the Christians don't already know that. It's not like they don't know their zip code, right? They know they live in Pergamum. This is saying something else, isn't it? Right. Uh, the question behind this question or, or this statement is, do you know where it is that you live? Do you know it the way I know it? And, and what Jesus says next is, do you know that where you live is where Satan's throne is? It's where Satan's throne is. Now, this is much stronger uh, language than what we read last Sunday in the letter to the church in Smyrna, where uh, he's, he points to the, those who slander the church, uh, the Jewish community, especially worship in the synagogue, who slandered the Christians during that time. Jesus points to them and says they're a synagogue of Satan. That's pretty strong language. Here, though, we don't just have a synagogue of Satan. We have the throne of Satan. His throne. It's where his stronghold is, as it were. It's, it's where his authority, his influence, his power are more cemented, uh, more permeating through the culture of the city. Why? On what basis uh, is Jesus saying this? So let's look at the city of Pergamum just a little bit historically. Um, in the center of Pergamum, there was this historic, one of the earliest temples built and dedicated to Caesar, the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma. Uh, Pergamum was a center for Caesar worship. And, and there were also second and third temples branching, branching out from that center. It was just filled. The city was filled with Caesar worship. And so a commentator says if Ephesus was the financial center of Asia Minor, a trading center, uh, Pergamum was like Washington, D.C. It was the, the political center of Asia Minor where you had not only the, the state of Rome established politically, but there's state-sponsored, state-enforced worship of the Roman emperor at the same time. And so imagine if, you know, there was next to the, the White House a temple uh, where you make sacrifices to all the presidents past and present. Okay. Uh, that's kind of what the atmosphere uh, was. There were also other temples. Uh, there, were also, uh, uh, there was also a temple dedicate, dedicated to uh, Asclepios, the, the Greek, some people say it's Greek, some people say it's Roman, patron god of healing, interestingly symbolized by a serpent. And, and this temple existed side by side with uh, what was considered during this time something like a medical school, a medical college where, where students would study their, the medicine of their day. But it was very much mixed in with idol worship. 
Uh, and, and that's not a good thing when mythology gets mixed with human anatomy and <laughs> surgery and things like that. But if you wanted to get healing or, or medical treatment, you would have to come and offer sacrifice to Asclepios. You worship this idol, and that's kind of your, your way of like paying your insurance premium. And then, and then you go get your prescription. Okay? If you offer the right sacrifices, this God will heal you. If you go further out from the city, uh, to the highest point of the city on the mountain, there was an enormous altar dedicated to Zeus. Also known during this time as Zeus the Savior. And in ancient Greece, right, Zeus was actually believed to be the strongest, uh, power, most powerful um, god. In Greco-Roman culture, it was a little bit different. The Romans found Zeus to be impressive because he resembled Jupiter a lot. And that's, that's a Roman god. So they would use images of Zeus to represent Jupiter, and they would you know, permit the various aspects of Greek mythology as long as it was sort of subservient to the Roman mythology, Roman deities, Roman cult this way. And at the center would still be, again, Caesar worship. And, and they kind of portrayed even uh, Zeus and all the other gods as sort of on, on board with Team Rome um, and on board with Caesar's agenda. And um, nothing makes that clearer than having Caesar's temple at the center of the city and Zeus on the outskirts of the city. And if, you know, if Zeus is on board with Caesar, he doesn't care that Caesar's temple is in the center of the city, then, then so must my deity, whatever my religion is, fall under the category of, uh, and, and be subservient to Caesar as well. That was a sentiment of their day. There are also other various temples dedicated to various acts. Uh, there are gods, of, gods and goddesses of wine, ecstasy, fertility, uh, and so in these temples, there, you will often find drunkenness, orgies. These were common things. All of this uh, is behind the context, uh, behind verse 13. Um, I know where you dwell, where you live. It's where Satan's throne is. It's where idol worship has taken root in every aspect of life, uh, political way of life, the, the, your financial way of life, even your medical way of life, your moral sexual way of life. It's, it's, it's the normative way of life. That's Pergamum. And that would have been not just destructive to the Christian way of life, but, but harmful, destructive to life in general, to, to everyone's life in general. This kind of debauchery, this kind of sexual immorality. And so God says, um, do you know where you dwell? Uh, you dwell in the, the city where, where Satan's throne is. Now, um, given this is the case, there's this, all this deterioration, socio-political, spiritual deterioration in Pergamum. What did that mean for the church? Uh, were the Christians just all rounded up and arrested and imprisoned and martyred altogether? Because that, that, that was somewhat of the case for Smyrna. And that's where there was a synagogue of Satan. Here you have the throne of Satan. Surely the persecution of Christians in, in the city of Pergamum would be more severe, more excruciating. That was not the case. Um, to the Christians in Pergamum, there's no foretelling of the suffering that is to come or the tribulation that is to come like there was for Smyrna. There's only mention of one martyr, Antipas, in the middle of verse 13, uh, and a temporary period of faithfulness around that time in those days. It says in verse 13, you hold fast my name, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Not much is known about Antipas, but um, he 
legends have it he he has he was serving as the the pastor bishop or elder of uh the church in pergamum seems that he was taken he was executed uh, to silence the witness of the church in pergamum um and legend also has it that the way that they executed him was by throwing him in in a a brazen bull a bull statue where they would offer sacrifice to idols so presumably Antipas was refusing to offer sacrifices to idols, and in a sort of a twisted, like poetic justice kind of way, they threw him as a sacrifice in the in the prison boy and roasted him alive. Here he says, though, even then, uh, the church was faithful um, in witnessing to Christ, not denying Christ, uh, and and the city that was persecuting Christians was not able to silence the witness of of these Christians. But is there all to their story? Uh, no. Uh, what Jesus reveals fully, more fully about the Christians in Pergamum uh, is that um, they were actually living subservient to this very throne of Satan. Now, before we move on, um, just to bring this first point to a landing, right? let's acknowledge that what Jesus is saying here is actually quite, um, quite revealing and quite sobering. And all he's saying at this point is, this happens. Uh, you can have a church with an amazing legacy, like the one you know they had here with Antipas, an incredible witness in the history of the church, and, and then and then at some point begin to live under the throne of Satan and not even know it. Uh, Christians can give into the same idols that the the rest of the world uh, is giving into, whether that's a political idol physical, intellectual idol, sexual, relational idol. Um, you can live under this, this seat of Satan, this throne of Satan, even as you consider yourself to be a, a Christian. It happened here. He's saying it's possible. This happens. And it's important we just kind of let that sink in for a moment before we, before we move on to the second point and, and see what Jesus is revealing further to us about Christians in Pergamum. Um, now, let's take note of this as well. The fact that Jesus does start off with something positive, <laughs> Um, something good about the Christians in Pergamum, even if it is something from the past and not from the, the present. Let's take note of that, yeah, that, that, uh, that Jesus here does something we as finite Christians are not really good at doing, and that is not, not ignoring the positive in view of the really negative. Um, suddenly, uh, we have the ability, when we come into conflicts, we have the sudden ability to just forget become forgetful of all the good, of all that's praiseworthy. We remove every benefit of the doubt and highlight the negative. And that tends to lead to magnifying the negative and catastrophizing the situation or the, or the conflict. And that's something God doesn't do here, right? Even though, the, the, as you see, the sin that he does point out is pretty catastrophic. Uh, but yet he... He doesn't shy away from pointing out the positive as well. And that's something worth keeping in mind, how Jesus is approaching them here. And, and that also tells us Jesus is not coming at them with this short-temperedness, with a sort of bitterness, with, with harshness. He's here just speaking the plain truth. He praises them for the faithful witness that they bore even during the time of the persecution uh, that you know uh, hit its climax with Antipas and his martyrdom. Uh, faithful witness is a, is a term that was used to, to refer to Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Here it's used to refer to the saints, and that's a, that's a compliment. 
That's high praise. And, and the Christians, in, just like the Christians in Smyrna, the Christians in Pergamum were initially faithful unto death. They were crossing the finish line. They were finishing strong. And then comes verse 14, right? But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Okay, what's that about? That's directly referring to the story found in Numbers chapter 22 to about 25, where Balaam, after being prevented by God to prophesy against or put a curse on Israel, he advises the Moabite king Balak, who wanted Israel destroyed, he basically advises him to take a different strategy. Uh, don't curse the Israelites. Just seduce them. Uh, seduce them with your, with your idols and food offered to idols. Seduce them with your women. Seduce the, the sons of Israel. And so Balak takes a different approach to, to bringing Israel to their knees rather than just charging front door with like curses and I curse you, right? <laughs> Here's some food, <laughs> and here's some of our women. And Israel fell. They fell hard. Uh, Jesus is bringing this up at this point to say, in a sense, um, you're falling in the very same way. Um, not, just, not so much because there's this heretic going around preaching heresies, but it's more so through your falling into the temptation of idolatry, maybe in the form of gluttony, and sexual immorality in the form of fornication, adultery, right? And so, so it says in verse 15, so also you, right, in the same manner, you have held on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And, and so we can imply from there, the Nicolaitans were kind of like the first century equivalent of the Moabites, uh, of Balaam and Balak, um, they're not charging in the front door with a bunch of heresies. Maybe they tried that and it didn't work. They're sneaking in the back door with their idols and with sexual immorality. Uh, the Bible also mentions elsewhere um, the church being tempted and falling into these temptations in Greco-Roman culture by participating in drunkenness, gluttony, even orgies. And Pergamum would not have been an exception to this. It would have been the, the accentuated version of this. Because all of these were just parts, regular parts of Caesar worship and permissible. And Pergamum, again, had, had a temple for everything. A temple for, for getting drunk, a temple for gluttony, a temple for orgies. And sadly, Christians were found in these temples church members. Now, is that disturbing? Christians participating publicly in these you know, drunkenness and orgies? Absolutely, that's disturbing, right? But we also have to be objective about this as well, right? Is that, is that any more disturbing than Christians getting drunk, given into gluttony, uh, sexual immorality, sleeping with someone who's not your spouse, in their own privacy, uh, in their own rooms, in their own homes. If we substitute temples with private residences, are we all that different? Uh, is the American church different from the Pergamum church? Maybe not. Maybe not so different. So the question is, 
Do you know where you live? Uh, do you know where you dwell and how Satan's throne rests in your city? And are you striving to live in a different city and, and building a different city? Being blind to this and just going along with the life of Pergamum, living like the rest of the citizens of Pergamum is what Jesus has against the Christians in Pergamum. They made the church look more and more like the city of Pergamum rather than the city of God, the kingdom of God that he talks about. Um, it's as if the, uh, the devil had taken the page out of Balak's book and rather than charging in the front door, have snuck in the back door. Um, and and kind of like the way we use ant poison, you know, you just you draw them into the trap and they... They take the poison, they take the bait, they go back to their nest, and then it destroys our colony, right? Um, yeah, they're, they're inviting the Christians into the culture of Pergamum and then sending them back into the church so they can self-destruct. It's the same strategy used in Numbers. Um, because because Balak couldn't turn, uh, uh, couldn't destroy uh, Israelites, he turned Israelites into Moabites. Um, as um, one... Theologian put it, if the devil can't destroy the church, he'll join one. Sobering, isn't it? Uh, Jesus is revealing to the Christians in Pergamum, this is what Satan's infiltration of the church and of the Christian individual and the Christian household looks like. This is what possession looks like, where Satan's throne rests that's what this looks like it's not at all what hollywood wants you to think when it comes to how how satan influences or or takes over people possesses people you know uh it's usually what some kind of violent like bone cracking convulsing experience and then your voice turns into this deep like terrorist voice that's pretty much what hollywood understands to be satanic influence or possession but think about it, wouldn't that just, if you were to actually see that, wouldn't that just make you run to Jesus faster? <laughs> uh, wouldn't that just make a convert out of an atheist for them to witness something like that? And be like, I am the devil and I deny Jesus Christ. Okay, I guess I, guess I need him then, because I don't want that. <laughs> the devil is smarter than that. He's more cunning than that. The truer form and a stronger form of the devil's takeover of a Christian life in the Christian household, consistent with this passage, looks more like somebody going to church while living just like the rest of the world. It's the Israelites who live like Moabites. It's the Christian in Pergamum who live like a Caesar worshiper in Pergamum. That's what Satan's throne looks like. A follower of Christ in Atlanta, Georgia, being indistinguishable from the non-Christians in Atlanta, Georgia. Where this kind of spiritual deception and confusion is, and the blind acceptance of this, that's where Satan's throne is, according to Jesus. And that was the state of the Christians in Pergamon. That's what Jesus is revealing to them. And, and this brings to mind all sorts of passages in the New Testament uh, where there's a common theme as well, but the one that stands out to me the most that has a parallel to this is found in James chapter 4. 
Uh, in James chapter 4, there's a similarly piercing judicial language addressed to Christians uh, in James chapter 4 where, where he says, you adulterous people, unfaithful, right? Uh, you're, you're self-professing to be the bride of Christ, but you are unfaithful to him, you adulterous people. And he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When you make yourself a friend to the world, you make God uh, your enemy. It's, it's the same theme here uh, and the same dynamic we see in, in the city of Pergamum. And here's what James says next to that. He says, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I like, I like that word dwell there because it's the same word dwell that, that's used in our passage today. Uh, it, it kind of reminds us if we connect the dots, if, if we forget this, if we forget that the Spirit of God dwells inside us, we actually make our dwelling somewhere else. Namely, the enemy of God. But in this, there's also the heart of God being revealed where you hear him say, he yearns jealously over you. He yearns jealously. Present tense. He yearns jealously for his people. And so James goes on to say, out of this heart, right, he gives more grace. Right? He's not filing for a divorce. He's saying, I want you back. I want you to come back to me. I want my bride to come back home. He's, he's willing to love Again, those who are undeserving of his love. He's ready to forgive again those who are undeserving of his forgiveness. Uh, the church's sins are many, but his, his mercies are still more. And so what follows thereafter in, in the rest of that passage in James is how he calls them back into worship, to re-enter worship, and to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, and the devil will flee, he says. The devil can't stand the presence of God where the throne of Christ is secure. He flees. And, and then you act out two things. You cleanse your hands and your heart because that's true repentance. There's the cleansing of your practice with your hands and not just the purifying of your hearts. You, there's a change, tangible change to your way of life. And lastly, you change your double-mindedness, this mindset that tries to hold on to both the, the pleasures of this world and the pleasures of God and sort of think we can just mesh them into one. We become single-minded in our worship of God, and, and we're reminded once again that in his, fullness, in his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures, true pleasures, lasting pleasures forevermore. And in worship, we, we therefore turn to him for our true bread, our true food, and be satisfied. All right, so there's that narrative of being restored through this invitation of God to repent and come back to him. In this letter to the city, the Christian, Christians in Pergamum, you find the very same heart of God and the invitation to repent. That's how verse 16 opens. Therefore, therefore, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to divorce you. Therefore, repent. Therefore, come back. Come back to me. Turn back. Make a U-turn. Right? Stop, because you missed me. You went right past me. Come back. Come back. Because I'm still yearning for you jealously. 
Right? He's showing the church through this invitation how committed he still remains to his people, to his bride. Right? He's showing the church how committed his heart remains. And he's always shown this to his people. That I am the one more committed to you than you will ever be to me. And it's my works that will save you, not your works that will bring you close to me. And the, the primary way, the, the, the main way in which he's shown us this is by his own death on the cross, where he said, it is finished. I've done everything there is to show you how committed I am to you to secure your salvation. That's why Jesus said, I lay my life down for my sheep, and, and not a single one of them can be snatched out of my hands. I died for my sheep. And so, now, our relationship to God can be defined not by our faithfulness to him, but, but more so by his faithfulness to us. And that's why this letter is not coming from Pergamum to God, from, but from God to Pergamum. Jesus is the one speaking. He's the one reaching out. He's the one who was wronged. He's the one who was cheated against. He's the one extending the hand of reconciliation. Repent, come back. And what does that mean? To repent. Again, it means both the cleansing of our hands and our heart. It means turning back turning back and fixing our eyes on that one point in history where the Son of God, our King of Kings, died on the cross on our behalf. Turn back to that point. Turn back to that person. Turn back to that food. Turn back to that temple and find yourself there. Um, I, I love the movie um, Ready Player One. It's based on a book, but it, I, I haven't read the book yet, but... Um, Steven Spielberg made a, made a good movie out of it, I think. And there's, it's a story of, right, uh, there's a race for the Easter egg that sort of gives you ownership of this virtual reality that, that is like global. And um, it's, it's, the, it's the highest prize in existence. And the, in the first race to, to win the first key to that Easter egg, um, no one gets past the, the, the final obstacle just before the finish line, and that is King Kong. Like all the racers would, would get past all the other obstacles, but as soon as they get to that last final obstacle, they just get crushed by King Kong and, and they die. Wade, the, the main character in that movie, he figures out the clue that gets him past King Kong and through the finish line. Um, he taps into the game maker's uh, history and his true intention behind this game and sort of the, the, the rules and the laws that, that he had initially laid down. And he basically unlocked a secret path. Uh, as he tapped into the, the the creator's sort of main intention behind the game. It's not to be given to commercialism and materialism and that kind of thing, but to go back to the the, the heart of the game, which is to to enjoy one another, uh, to find community and uh, and to to have fun, not to make a lot of money. But the the entire world is racing towards, right, that one direction towards the prize, trying to win when the, the creator of the game didn't want it to be about winning. So what was the, what was the secret path? The secret path was actually to go backwards. Uh, at the start of the race, you don't, you don't go forward, you go backwards. And if you go backwards, it's, it's unfair. It's too easy. There's no obstacles, and you just 
pass through the finish line, and then he can see above him all the all the actual race happening, and then King Kong smashing everyone else. But he gets passed through King Kong underneath him with no obstacles. Why? Because he's figured out the true intention of the game, and and he won by going backwards. Um, the creator and the rule maker's intention is very clear here. Uh, he's saying, go backwards. Turn around, go backwards. Be last. And you'll find my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm not asking you to atone for your own sins. I'm asking you to look to me who paid that price for you. It's not about you getting ahead of others. It's not about you learning how to remove all these obstacles in your life. It's you looking to me who effectively did all that for you. And that's how you conquer this race. That's how you win. That's how you get through the finish line. It's not by being first, but by being last. That's repentance. Looking to Christ, who finished first for us, and trusting in him alone for our salvation. And what would repenting this way and turning to him this way look like in a city where Satan is enthroned? It will look pretty constant, wouldn't it? <laughs> the cleansing of your hands in this, in this context would be daily, if not hourly. Because every time you step into the city, you get your hands dirty. And Jesus said you don't need to wash your whole body again, meaning you don't have to be rebaptized, you don't have to be saved again, but you do have to wash your feet and your hands again and again and again. In a city that has bad signage and right, bad road conditions and bad city planning, uh, I'm not calling Atlanta out. <laughs> you would have to make a lot of U-turns, wouldn't you? It'd be constant. Right? It's, it's, like, it's like the, the GPS can't even keep up with you. In a city like Pergamum, the, the, the spiritual U-turns you make would be constant. The, the repentance would be constant. And then comes a warning, if not, if not, right? That, that scary warning language of if not. I will war against those who do not repent. But what, if you consider that, what a comfort this would have been for those who have been suffering because of the, the unrepentant Christians who are, who are hurting the, the church, who are hurting the saints, um, for them to know uh, that same sword, that the same two-edged sword that, that did the surgery on my heart and healed me and made me better will fall judicially and punishingly on those who do not want to be healed, who would rather want to hurt others. I can trust in his judgment and not take vengeance into my own hands. I can patiently endure through suffering because he says, if not, his judgment will come. He will divorce those and identify those who refuse to repent as not his people. So this warning reassures the church, the true church, those who truly hear of the protection that they can enjoy under the sword of God. But to those who are unrepentant, it's a... It's a sobering warning, to, especially if you've been a wolf in sheep's clothing, to reverse that, to, to actually become a sheep on the inside. 
In closing, uh, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. And that is to say, I want you to hear this. I want you to be of the sheep who hear the shepherd's voice and follow him. I really want to convey this to you. I want you to be those who have ears to hear what I'm saying. And if you, if you hear this, you will conquer, you finish the race. And here's some mysterious language about the hidden manna and being given a white stone with a new name written on it that nobody knows except the one who receives it. Okay, what's that about? And um, I, I've been reading four or five commentaries on this, and they all have different takes. What is the white stone? What is this hidden manna? What I'm going to try to show you is just what the most overlaps are in the commentary. So I think would be the, the better way to understand these things. Um, the, the hidden manna is the unique privilege given to the people of God who know a thing or two about tasting the goodness of Christ, who himself is bread from heaven. Um, repenting really means knowing how lovely Jesus is and tasting and seeing that he is good and saying, I'd rather have him than anything that Pergamum affords me today. Then, then you've tasted the hidden manna. If you know how lovely he is and if you love him. The white stone with a new name, what's that? Um, white stones were actually given during legal um, proceedings during this time to indicate that the person who, who, who was standing trial is now found guiltless and innocent of all the charges made against him or her. That's what the white stone would, would signify. And to have your name written on that white stone probably means that is now your name. Innocent, guiltless before the judge. And the, the truth of that name, it's important for you to you know in a way that is secretive to you, that in a way that's hidden to you, right? No one knows except for the one who receives it. This is a new identity and a new name that you yourself are assured of. It's not something, you know, I can tell you, a pastor can tell you that you have. It's the Holy Spirit in you that tells you you are a child of God as he reassures you of the Abba Father that you have. It's, it's not something indicated by your name ending up on the, the church membership directory. Uh, it's something you're assured of by having the Holy Spirit who reminds you of, of the words of Christ. I will never leave you nor forsake you. No one can snatch you out of my hand. And I have cleansed you. I have purified you. I have made you clean. And that gives us a new identity to live with. A, a name that is not on our passport. Um, name that doesn't go on our resumes. Not the, not the name next to your GPA or in your car title or your mortgage on the house. Your, your true name is written on this very permanent white stone that God is holding onto for you. And that name, you will recognize when you hear him call you by that name on the last day. He gives you something to long for so that in the here and now, on this side of heaven, we live faithfully and hopefully and patiently 
so that one day when we see God face to face and he calls us by our true name, we will recognize it and respond. I'm going to close with just a few um, application points. And it's stemming from basically our outline today. Uh, Let's take some time to consider our city, consider where we live. What sorts of uh, sins is the city or our culture prone to and accepting of and and that we ought to be rejecting, we ought to be uh, aware of? How is my life set apart from that? What, if any, pleasures am I foregoing as a result of striving to live in the city of God rather than the city of Pergamum? How am I different? What does carrying my cross, denying myself, actually look like as I live in this city where that's rare? Consider your city. Consider where you dwell. Consider also, secondly, uh, what cleansing your hands would look like not just purifying your hearts, but what, if you were to change what you're doing tangibly with your hands, what would that look like? And how would you go about doing that regularly? Right? What, are the, what are the more common idols that you, you're susceptible to that you want to regularly clean your hands off to be done away with? <laughs> Lastly, consider Jesus. Jesus, the anti-Asclepios, who says... You don't have to offer yourself to me first for me to heal you. I'm going to offer myself up for you in order to heal you. And let that love, as often as you consider his love, let that love strengthen you to love him in return. Let that love demand from you your life, your soul, and your all. And remember that always, forever, he will be the one more committed to you than you'll ever be to him. And that makes him trustworthy. That makes him worthy of your love and worthy of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gospel of your son, that while we were yet still sinners, while we were still ungodly, uh, he came to die for us and to restore us and to heal us. Uh, Lord, we want to be more sensitive to the voice of the shepherd and follow after him. And live now as people set apart from the city of man and living for the city of God, making that kingdom more visible here on earth, even now, as we await your, your fullness, the fullness of your kingdom that is to come. Would you encourage us and strengthen us in this direction? Uh, help us to be better at making U-turns, repenting constantly, always, daily, hourly, uh, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Uh, May we follow after him and finish the race and be faithful unto death. Lord, do this work in this church. Uh, Close all our back doors. And Lord, let your spirit uh, fill every single person here who professes Christ as Lord. And may we be walking, living temples of your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.